The Institute. Institute. Institute for Justice. The National Law Firm for Liberty. Hello and welcome to Short Circuit, your podcast on the Federal Courts of Appeal. I'm your host, John Ross, joined this week by IJ attorneys Robert Everett Johnson and Rob Bacola. This week on the show, a pair of IJ cases involving milk labeling rules in Florida and taxi protectionism in Portland, Oregon, as well as an exoneree's suit against a detective who put her away and a Jeremiah against Chevron deference. Rob Bacola, kick us off. We're starting off with a case known around the office as Florida Skim Milk, which was a tremendous victory for our Florida office having to do with commercial speech. The facts of the case involve a small dairy in Florida that produces milk products, including skim milk, which we all understand to be fat-free milk. And in this case, the process by which they make the milk is separating the cream, which they use to make cream, and selling skim milk, which sounds fine so far. But... When that cream is removed, so is the vitamin A, and the government stepped in and decided that calling this product skim milk, which we all understand to be fat-free milk, was not okay because it was missing vitamin A. And the clients in this case, the farmers, went to great lengths to accommodate this labeling requirement, uh, noting that the vitamin A was not present, But none of this would do for the state of Florida, and they ended up having to dump out all that extra milk into the garbage, essentially. And this is my favorite part. The state of Florida wanted them to label this milk product, or the skim milk, as imitation milk product, even though it was literally nothing more than milk that had the cream removed. Yeah, come to our farm and buy our imitation milk product. That doesn't sound very good, does it? It's just skim milk. So having lost their speech claim at the district court level, the farmers appealed to the 11th Circuit, which took this speech claim very seriously and applied the test that applies to all commercial speech and starts out by examining, as one would expect, whether the speech is truthful and not fraudulent. For example, you couldn't put whitewashed water and call it milk. And they looked at what a layperson? What is the colloquial understanding of milk? And I actually found this part of the opinion the most moving because they really showed that it can't be the government that forms what our understanding of words are, that it comes from us, that it comes from our sort of societal understanding. And so if I may read a brief passage from the opinion, They wrote, it is undoubtedly true that a state can propose a definition for a given term. However, it does not follow that once a state has done so, any use of the term inconsistent with the state's preferred definition is inherently misleading. So in other words, they're looking at what the actual term means for us, for the people who are out there uh, either buying the milk, producing the milk. And they actually, lo and behold, turned to the dictionary rather than the government to have a true understanding of what skim milk is. And the rest of the opinion essentially flowed from there. Once that basic factual understanding of this is skim milk, not some whitewashed imitation milk product, it became pretty clear that the government couldn't meet its burden in essentially suppressing the speech of folks who simply want to sell fat-free milk. 
Yeah, and that's a, a really important point because that may that may almost sound so true that it's self-evident, but the district court reached completely the opposite conclusion. What the district court said was, you know, the government has defined the term skim milk to mean uh, skim milk that has had vitamin A added to it, uh, which is an incredible thing to say that the government has defined skim milk to mean skim milk plus something else. Um, it's, it has a sort of circularity to it. And the district court bought that and said, if you don't meet the government's definition of skim milk, then saying that it's skim milk is inherently false and misleading. Why don't they add vitamin A to the milk? I mean, what's the big deal? The, these clients in particular are an all-natural farm, and they take tremendous pride in the fact that these are not altered dairy products that contain additives. And that's their good pleasure, the way they do business. And most importantly, it's the way consumers want to buy products from them. And one for, final point about this opinion that I, I think maybe will segue us to our next case. Um, there's a, a fascinating passage in which the panel says, um, they basically tried to give the government an out, and they tried to get the government to argue that you're just not allowed to sell uh, milk, skim milk, without vitamin A at all. And so then it wouldn't be a case about the label. It would be a case about whether you can sell the milk in the first place. Because what the panel knew, what the court knew, is that if you're talking about conduct, selling something on the marketplace, instead of how you label it, then the government, under the current constitutional doctrine, gets an extraordinarily great amount of leeway. You're outside of First Amendment land, and suddenly you're in the land of uh, the rational basis test, economic liberty. Uh, it's the poor stepchild of the Constitution. Um, but for whatever reason, the government in this case wouldn't take that route. They said, no, no, you're allowed to sell it. You're just not allowed to sell it skim milk. And that was the government's undoing. And kudos to our Florida office for vindicating these folks' rights and for establishing precedent that affirms that you can tell the truth about your product and not be punished for it. The Ninth Circuit also recently decided an IJ case. Robert Everett Johnson. Yeah, so uh, this case, I think, is sort of the flip side of what I was just saying, where the economic liberty gets far less protection than uh, speech under the First Amendment. This is a case out of Portland. Uh, it involves a, a client of IJ named Mike Porter, who uh, owns a business called towncars.com. And he uh, has run this business for a while. He gives rides to, to people. It's a, a black car service, essentially. And he wanted to expand his business. So he did a Groupon promotion where he offered people uh, rides for $35 flat fee. And lo and behold, he gets a letter uh, from the city saying that he has violated a city ordinance that creates a uh, minimum dollar 50 fare for trips to the, uh, to the airport that requires black cars to charge a minimum of 35% more than taxi cabs. Uh, and on top of all of that, that also requires in any case, in any time when you hail a black car or call a black car, uh, they have to make you, make you wait at least an hour. Uh, and the purpose of all this is, sort of, as you might imagine, to give uh, black cars, uh, to put them at a disadvantage relative to the taxi cab industry. You, know, you call a taxi cab, they can come right away. They charge, uh, you know, at least 35% less. They can take you to the airport for less than 50 bucks. Um, it's to give taxi cabs an advantage and to put the black car services at a disadvantage. I would add that this illuminating factual background that you just gave is nowhere to be found in the Ninth Circuit's opinion. If you relied on that alone, we wouldn't uh, have any information at all about what actually happened here. 
Yeah, this decision is what, when, when I clerked on the Ninth Circuit, we called a mem dispo, which is a memorandum disposition. It's a uh, three-page long little squib of a decision that gives you no factual background and uh, very little in the way of reasoning. But, um, you know, be that as it may, we challenged this, this case uh, or this, this restriction on minimum, uh, the minimum fare restriction for town cars. And we said, look, you know, this violates the federal constitution. You have a right uh, to, you know, charge people if you're if you want to provide a service for um, less than the next guy. That's your constitutional right. Nobody should be charged to forced to charge more um, than they want to for their services. And uh, this went all the way up to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit basically said, you know what. We find this to be a perfectly constitutional restriction on your economic activities. And they applied what's called the rational basis test. And they said there is a rational basis for this restriction, and it is what it what you might think it is. It's to protect the taxi industry. And bizarrely, the decision also says economic protectionism by itself uh, is not a rational basis. So how did they how did they square that? Well, they're they're what they're doing there is they're trying to deal with a Ninth Circuit decision that came before. And to give a little bit of context for this, there, there is a circuit split that has developed mostly in cases brought by the Institute for Justice on this question of, is it a legitimate governmental interest to try to benefit one group of economic actors at the expense of another group of economic actors? Without so, any public interest, without any kind of public uh, benefits. Exactly, exactly. So like, for instance, we had a case that we brought on behalf of a group of monks in Louisiana who wanted to sell caskets, and a casket is just a box. Uh, and the state of Louisiana required you to get a funeral director's license in order to sell a casket. And uh, you know, one asserted justification for this was, well, it economically helps funeral directors. And what the, the Fifth Circuit said was, no, that's, that is not permissible. You can't uh, benefit one group of economic actors at the expense of another um, is bare economic protectionism is not a legi legitimate purpose for the government to act. Uh, and the Ninth Circuit had said the same thing in a case called Merrifield versus Lockyer. Uh, and the Sixth Circuit said the same thing as well. But then on the other side of the split, you have the Second Circuit, uh, which just recently in an IJ case uh, called Sensational Smiles, said that uh, bare economic protectionism is a legitimate government interest. In that case, it was uh, requiring that only dentists could provide teeth whitening services. And the Second Circuit said that's totally fine because it helps dentists. Rob, I think it's time for the Supreme Court to weigh in. I think that's what I'm hearing. I think it's absolutely time for the Supreme Court to rule in, uh, rule in on this issue. Uh, but even beyond that, it's time for the Ninth Circuit to take this particular case uh, on bunk because what happened here is the panel uh, completely disregarded the Ninth Circuit's own decision in Merrifield versus Lockyer and said, you know, even though the Ninth Circuit has said that economic protectionism is not a valid interest, here we think that it is. Uh, and they give a, a completely unconvincing rationale for why that would be the case. They say that economic protectionism may not be okay, is not okay in most cases, but it is okay if you, if you pair uh, the economic protectionism with some other sort of regulation. So what they say is, oh, well, taxis are heavily regulated, so we need to uh, provide protection for taxis to build up the industry as a kind of counterweight to all the regulation that they're subject to. Um, but that's just a rationale that you could really apply in any case, right? Every industry is heavily regulated. So if that's the rule, then any industry can be regulated for economic protectionist reasons 
as a you know uh, quote unquote counterweight to the burdens of regulation. And I, I think and that part, just can't be the law. Part of what's saddening about this is the point that you brought up, uh, which is the juxtaposition between the Eleventh Circuit skim milk decision and this Ninth Circuit decision. All of the those nuanced issues that you just brought up would have come out in the opinion had they engaged with the factual record the way the Eleventh Circuit did, and shown what was actually going on versus what was conceivable or what could just be given the short shrift as a justification. And it really is a juxtaposition between an opinion that looks at the factual record and comes to a conclusion versus one that, with the mere word conceivable, is able to brush all that aside and not illuminate any of those facts. Yeah. Can you imagine in the First Amendment context if the government was to say, our, our purpose in, in this regulation of speech is to benefit one group of speakers at the expense of another. I mean, like, can you imagine? <laughs> they, they, they'd be grabbed by the collar and thrown out. But right, exactly. But in the context, yeah, in the context of economic regulation, like, oh, yeah, sure, totally fine, totally fine. Uh, or at least, you know, for this Ninth Circuit panel, not for the other Ninth Circuit panel in the Merrifield case, not for the Fifth Circuit, not for the Sixth Circuit. So you definitely, you have a, a mess of conflicts here where, it's something that the Ninth Circuit's going to have to take this on banc, and they're going to have to uh, they're going to have to resolve these conflicts, and hopefully they'll do so in a way that provides uh, meaningful protection for people's economic liberties. Well, we have appealed to take it on banc, so stay tuned for more on that. Let's move to the next case, Rob Picola. Well, this next case out of the Sixth Circuit is a dramatic, sad, compelling, at times disturbing uh, twist of just bizarre events. This involves a plaintiff who I think we should all give some credit to. Reading this opinion, this was a really strong woman who persevered through one of the greatest abuses of our justice system that I've seen in a while. There, there are some details in here, too, that are completely irrelevant to the merits of it that just give wonderful insights into her character. Yeah, so this is a woman who is, has had a long history of standing up for herself. She would uh, do target practice in her backyard. She didn't submit to warrants when the police came. She would call up her lawyer. And I might add that she did all of this with one leg. She had a motorcycle driving boyfriend who she fended off with a gun. She she lived in tough circumstances and she faced those tough circumstances with equal force. And this is a 100-pound woman with one leg. So with that factual background, we get to the real meat of this case, which revolves around a murder. A man was found in the water, strangled, I'm sorry, tied with a guitar cord. And this was a man that this uh, and woman, shot in the head as well. Yeah, shot, shot in the head as well. And this is somebody who had had an on again, off again relationship with the plaintiff here. And I, we, we should call her by name, uh, Ms. King. She had had a psychic premonition a few days before that this man would turn up in water. And to be clear, they already knew he was missing. So it's not like this was like, you know, out of the blue that she thought maybe he would turn up. Well, the police start investigating, and there is the usual course of events, questioning witnesses, uh, or in, in this case, questioning people who were close to the, to the victim. And there was even an attempt to get inside her home based on the fact that there were some bullet holes in the ground floor of 
her home. Now, this is important because the bullets that entered this man's skull didn't leave his skull. So the fact that there were bullets uh, that had made marks on the floor of her home made no difference whatsoever. And as a matter of fact, when investigators presented those facts to a neutral magistrate, the search for the, the warrant was denied. Well, years later, the cold case investigator starts looking for someone to pin this crime on. Uh, you know, true crime is a very popular sort of format right now in terms of television and books. And this really has the makings of one of those cold cases that gets reopened. And based on no more information than existed before, there is this sort of campaign mounted against Ms. King where there are a, a factual basis that doesn't really link anything to her, this murder specifically, but still not only is now uh, gets a warrant to go into her home, but eventually gets this to a grand jury. Well, eventually, thanks to the good folks at the Innocence Project, after she was convicted and spent more than six years in prison. Well, she pled guilty. That's true. That's a really good point. She did plead guilty, but without admitting that she committed the crime, which is a special criminal procedure that uh, is, is, is not the ultimate focus of this case. But ultimately, she was exonerated. And, and, and actually, it, it, an even more bizarre twist to this case, a serial killer ended up confessing to this crime while this poor woman who has been so battered by the justice system was sitting in prison. She eventually has the conviction overturned and naturally brings a civil suit against this investigator who had mounted this campaign against her using false information. And a, a couple of details that are just so incredible. After the serial killer confesses, the, the cold case officer who had pinned this on Susan King uh, then talks to the person who confessed to the crime and convinces him to somehow to recant, recant his confession. Uh, the cold case officer then loses conveniently his tape recording of that conversation in which the confession is recanted. Um, so we don't know, you know, how he convinced this person to recant it. Uh, the only reason that Susan ever even found out that someone had confessed to the murder was that another officer uh, in the department uh, told the Innocence Project about this confession um, to the crime. And the officer who spilled the beans and actually uh, provided that information was then demoted, um, put on the graveyard shift, uh, and uh, suffered incredible professional consequences just because he did the right thing and told this woman that somebody had had confessed to the crime that she is spending time in jail for. Well, and speaking of professional consequences, I think it bears mentioning that the cold case investigator who sent this woman to prison wrongfully received great accolades for this. And so that does show some of the incentives, I would argue perverse incentives that exist to obtain a conviction rather than to bring justice. Oh, that's absolutely right. The, the officer who exposed the wrongdoing uh, suffered and the officer who did who created this entire situation is uh, hailed as officer of the year, essentially. Which brings us to this case and this suit where she sues that detective for malicious prosecution. What did the Sixth Circuit say? Well, the part of the reason that this is part of the whole 
short circuit rubric is because this was an incredibly engaged opinion that really delved into the, the factual background and then also the very nuanced legal doctrines that can often keep people who have been abused by the justice system out of court. There were two issues that the court looked at. One was a statute of limitations issue, which the court uh, addressed very concisely. The most fascinating legal aspect of this case, I think, was the fact that there was a claim of immunity from this officer who had targeted her based on the fact that a grand jury had returned an indictment and that his testimony was part of that, which is this entire absolute immunity that often protects people, sometimes very justifiably, who testify in front of a grand jury. But the Sixth Circuit engaged and they saw beyond that and they looked at what's really happening. And they looked at what happens when you set the wheels of justice in motion against someone. So essentially, the Sixth Circuit took a couple steps back to look at the big picture. They looked at these facts that we just discussed about false information being submitted, about the fact that there was... Uh, no match found between the bullets that she was using for target practice and the bullets that were found in this man's head. And the fact that there was this knowing misrepresentation of those facts. And I think that perhaps a good summary of the kind of judicial engagement we saw here was that no one is above the law. And that as many times as there are carve-outs for either elected officials or for sometimes uh, judicial officials, all these kinds of what are known as immunity, that when someone is knowingly making misrepresentations, they can't get out of it. And you just read this. I, I would say this is recommended reading to anyone, this fascinating opinion, just hoping that this woman will be finally vindicated. And I think this opinion will set the wheels in motion, uh, so to speak, for her to finally get her day in court and to receive some sort of compensation for what happened to her. Not that anyone can ever get those years of their life back. One other interesting aspect of this opinion that um, you know, at least I found fascinating is that she did plead guilty. And uh, one of the things that seems to be going on here is that the court below, the district court, said, you know, given that she pled guilty, how could there be any claim for malicious prosecution? Because if, if even she recognized that, you know, there was enough that she had to plead guilty to avoid going to trial, you know, surely that it couldn't have been wrong to bring the prosecution in the first place. Um, and the Sixth Circuit addresses that and and, and kind of knocks it aside in this way that's really revealing. Um, they say, you know, look, she was faced with prosecution and, and she was given this proposed plea deal which, where she would spend 10 years in jail uh, and plead guilty to manslaughter. On the other hand, if she went to trial, she was facing a potential uh, minimum of at least of a life sentence, but also a potential death penalty. And the officer, the cold case officer, who is the you know one who brought this case, said to her on several occasions, you know, look, if you go to trial, I'm going to make sure you get the death penalty and I'm going to make sure that you die. He said, we'll put you in the electric chair. Exactly. He went so far as to say that. And so, you know, it, it's an interesting thing. that The district court basically was like, you know, why would somebody plead guilty to a crime they didn't commit or if it, where there's no evidence that they committed it? And 
you know, that's why, because the this these are the kinds of coercive officers offers that the government uses in case after case to get people to agree to these kinds of deals. And it's it's something that's actually relevant to the work we do here at IJ on civil forfeiture, where people will sign agreements to give up their property. And people say, well, God, why would you ever sign an agreement giving up your own property if, it, if it's legitimately earned? That's because government, government makes coercive uh, agreements like that constantly in all different kinds of contexts, and people are constantly being forced to agree to things uh, that, that aren't right and aren't really justified. Yeah, and I would just, but just to uh, put a, a period on that, is that I think it also sheds some light on what happens in the criminal justice system, where the courts and law enforcement view a category of people as criminals. And all criminals are the same because they've done bad things. And the presumption, even though the presumption and the law, of course, is that they're innocent until proven guilty, is that because they're part of this criminal class, that any decisions they make or anything in the factual record of a case is viewed through that lens, essentially vilifying people who, in this case, was completely innocent. Okay, well, then let's move on to the final case, which takes us to the Third Circuit. Rob Johnson. All right, so here we have a case whose facts basically don't matter, or at least they don't matter to us. Um, This is an employment dispute. The facts are messy. Um, This guy claims that he was retaliated against for uh, taking leave because of his migraines. Um, The case went to a jury, uh, and the jury ruled against him. And then the question on appeal has to do with the instructions that were given to the jury. Were they the right instructions? Uh, or were they the wrong instructions? And uh, the reason that we care about this case is what the majority says, well, the Department of Labor has a regulation uh, that they have issued that governs this type of case and that tells us what the answer is, that what does the government have to prove in this kind of case? Um, and under what's called Chevron deference, as a court, we are required to basically defer to what the Department of Labor says. So there's an underlying statute that creates a rule that has been passed by Congress. And then the Department of Labor, a bunch of unelected bureaucrats, have basically said what that statute means. And it's the role of the court to just do what the Department of Labor says. Um, And then you have a concurrence from uh, Judge uh, Jordan, who is a uh, judge on the Third Circuit, who basically lays into this doctrine. And it's, it's a very timely opinion, actually, with... Uh, soon to be Justice Gorsuch. Uh, Cited extensively in this concurrence, exactly for his own concurrences. <laughs> for, for having said exactly the same thing very recently. Um, and, and by the way, I, I lear- listening to the confirmation hearings, I learned his name is pronounced Gorsuch. Uh, so yeah, ah, good, to, good to know, right? Um, but uh, uh, the uh, concurrence here from Judge Jordan is just fantastic. It points out all of the problems with Chevron deference, that you're basically, the courts are, are giving up their role of uh, saying what the law is, and they're instead handing that job over to the executive branch, um, which is not the way it's supposed to work. The job is supposed to be the job of the courts to say what the law is, not the job uh, of unelected administrative agencies. I think um, another point, uh, just just to jump in with sometimes why that important doctrine can get lost is because it often, well, always comes up in these very dense administrative 
uh, type of actions. And if I could just briefly read something, it says that the plaintiff uh, filed a complaint alleging violations of the ADEA, ADA, and FMLA. (laughs) And uh, the great Judge Moylan of the Maryland Appellate Courts once said that a hazard of federal litigation is drowning in alphabet soup. And this is certainly a case of that. And there's this, if, when, once you pierce through that, there is this actually exceedingly important separation of powers issue that arises, but you don't get to it until you've been through many pages of this dense sort of jargony uh, opinion language. So uh, kudos to Rob for distilling it. <laughs> yeah, and I, I just want to close by reading this incredible passage from this concurrence, which I think is is worth reading and then... Uh, I don't think I can say it any better than Judge Jordan. He says, this doctrine of deference to administrative agencies is contrary to the roles assigned to the separate branches of government, embeds perverse incentives in the operations of government, spreads the spores of the ever-expanding administrative state, requires us, meaning judges, to lay aside fairness and our own best judgment and instead bow to the nation's most powerful litigant, the government, for no reason other than that it is the government. The problems this creates are serious and ought to be fixed. Okay, that concludes the show. Thanks for listening. Until next time, this is John Ross from the Institute for Justice, inspiring you to get engaged.